God as we understood him makes no uh, claim that we could understand God because he's infinite and can't be understood. What it, rather, what it refers to is the necessity of personal experience. It almost felt like in choosing recovery, I had to abandon Judaism in some way. Everything is recorded. Everything is recorded. Our sages tell us there's an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and everything is recorded in a book. Were it not for Torah, we would learn everything we need to know from animals. The truth is, the spiritual teachings are life and death for everybody. But, you know, most people don't see it that way. A recovery crowd definitely sees spirituality as life and death. It's no joke. I'm not doing this for fun. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more. More from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, Chase, here we are. Yes. Okay. In so, the same physical space. In the same physical space. We've done a lot of... Uh, virtual. Virtual stuff. And we've done a lot of virtual stuff that have not been recorded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. We did a few uh, virtual recordings that we kept just right. for... It was recorded in, uh, what are the, in the Book of Life or something. <laughs> yeah. It was... <laughs> it didn't make it to the... Uh, to the hard drive. Well, in different situations, but... Everything is recorded. Everything is recorded. Our sages tell us there's an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and everything is recorded in a book. It's right. all recorded. Right. This concept they couldn't have understood so well before... Uh, before technology. Like, it's possible right. that we understand this idea, like, better than someone like... No question. The Rambam understood this idea. For, for sure. Because it's a tangible idea to us. Right. Yeah. For them, it was an abstraction. Right. Yeah possible <laughs> so yeah. okay but i'll explain to the audience what what happened so we've had a number of conversations yes which worked some of them which worked didn't actually work that well like we had the one where the camera kept shutting off for some bizarre reason i remember that and then we had one where i forgot to hit record and another one where <laughs> there was an echo yes there was another one where your internet on your side it was choppy yeah the first one so we yeah. probably had about Four or five recordings that have not um, right. worked out. But it's all divine providence. <laughs> I'm sure it is. So finally, I said, Chase, maybe we're just meant to have a conversation <laughs> in person. Let's push this off until you come down to Miami. We'll spend yeah. some time. You know, Maybe we'll even uh, do something so bold as to record two recordings in one day. And then the world will have it in person. So yeah. thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. We're in search of more. By the way, people should know that that beautiful background back there through the window, um, it's like there's this whole like open area and there's a goat that wanders around. People don't realize there's a goat wandering around the premises. <laughs> the goat's a new addition. We have some chickens. I heard you got rid of the rooster. Richard told me you got rid of the rooster because he was waking people up, which is traditionally what roosters No, that wasn't the do. problem with oh, the no? rooster. He what? would do it all times of day. Ah, he was a shicker. <laughs> uh -huh. He didn't stop. He, uh -huh. <laughs> all uh -huh. times of day, he was cockadoodle doing. Uh -huh. And then he attacked a couple of the kids. Oh no! So we said, we got to get rid of him. Yeah. So he's he's gone. But we do have a few chickens. We have There's some peacocks, right? Those are not ours. Those kind of oh wander really? Through. Those kind of wander through. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you yeah. something about the peacocks, yeah. which is fascinating. So you can see there's glass behind us, right? Yes. You can see this glass. So on the property, there's a lot of glass doors. The peacocks like this property because they get to look at themselves in the mirror. 
Yes. That is so funny. I thought it was just like a like a metaphor. Proud as a peacock. No. They, they like to primp and preen and they really they are really do. into themselves. Yes. They'll, ha- they'll hang out in front of the doors, the wow. glass doors, so that they can see themselves and they'll often leave And they'll like pose. Remains. But you should give them smartphones and see if they start taking selfies. <laughs> right. Give them a social media account. <laughs> right. They'll be on it all day. <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. See them. what happens. Science experiment. Yeah. But- it, it actually does make sense, right? There's a Jewish concept that were it not for Torah, we would learn everything we need to know from animals. So there's something to learn from the peacock. Right. <clears throat> so I don't know what to learn about the fact that it's the male peacock, which does the more elaborate right. dressing, not the female. Yeah, yeah. The, the male peacock is only with the colorful, the colorful feathers. Yeah. Right. I've wondered why that is. Why the male is the one who attracts the woman's attention as opposed to the woman attracting the male's attention? Correct, yeah. Yeah. I guess because among human beings, you think about it being more of a woman's courting ritual to wear colorful clothing. Yes. It's a profound question. Yeah, we don't, <laughs> we don't have an answer. Maybe we have to learn from the peacocks. Maybe For I should the stop to be, wearing right. all black and white. Maybe the I, women to be more subdued. I need to get like a Technicolor dream coat, like Joseph. In in yeshiva, I um I had a hard time with the uh, dress code. Know, the dress code, but it was too similar to everyone else, and it bothered me. So yeah. I needed something to differentiate myself in some way. So at some point, I found a hat. It was like a twenty dollars hat at um, Zara. They had a fedora. I'm like okay, I wore that, okay. and on holiday didn't didn't bother me. I had a jacket that was. Really close, little. really close to a denim jacket, but not so much. I'm uh-huh. sure. mm-hmm. They let it go. And then at one point, I, I bought this terribly ugly white shirt. I mean, it was really the ugliest thing you can imagine. And underneath the white shirt was sewn this multicolored pattern that when you looked at it, it was white, but when you looked, you wondered you if inside. it was something else. On the inside. So it was sewed on the inside of the white shirt, uh-huh. a multicolored so pattern. So it was technically a white shirt. So it was a white shirt. But... Inside it was... But you couldn't quite... You weren't quite sure what you're looking at. So you uh-huh. know how someone sometimes the tzitzis will come through the white shirt and you'll yeah, see Yeah, it'll show. The stripe shirt. will show sometimes, yeah. So it had something similar, but with a, a wild color design. Right. And uh, I'll never forget this. I walked into Zal and my... Um, in, into the, uh, the yeshiva, into the study room, and my table was right in front of Rabbi Kaplan. Okay. Where I sat. And I sat down... And he calls me over within 30 seconds. <laughs> and he says, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, go back to your room, put it back on and perm. <laughs> <laughs> he gave you a day where you could wear that it. I could wear but it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to push the envelope then. We'll try to push the envelope now a little okay. bit. I'll ask you the most right. challenging question you've ever heard in your life. Okay. Who is Shay Staub? Who is Shay Staub? So let me, I'll, I'll add a little to the question. Oh, you can let me off the hook. Okay. I'll let's let you change the hook a little bit. Okay. No, not to change a subject, but many people have heard your teachings. In one of our podcasts that didn't make it, you actually spoke more about <clears throat> your personal life, like even where the name Chase came from, where you came from. Who is Chase Taub? This guy that came out of the sea, um, to the scene in the Chabad world, is teaching many people, is teaching many shluchim. Where did, uh, where did Chase Taub grow up? I'm from Chicago, which is... To me, the most normal possible place where anyone could come from. I've often thought to myself whether it is possibly 
a universal phenomenon of human psychology that everybody thinks of the place where they grew up as the most normal possible place to grow up. Because I, 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 I think about it, you know, like Chicago to me is like the most typical place. It's America. It's Midwest, but it's not like coastal. It's Midwest. It's like a city, but it, it's not New York. It's like the most archetypical. But so I think you, probably... You feel like it's the a, it's a, it's a middle on all fronts. Yeah, yeah. It's the middle of the country. It's just the, like, the most nondescript possible place to come from. Because like, if you would get more nondescript, then it would be too boring, and then the, the boringness becomes itself Something unique. a peculiarity. Yeah, right. yeah. Like if you'd be from Akron, Ohio, you know, like that's... That's out there. Yeah, because it's so normal that it becomes almost interesting again. Right. Someone asks, oh, how many people live in Akron, Ohio? Yeah, exactly. Right. But no, one's, no one says, how many people live in Chicago? No one asks that. Right. Right. I yeah. understand the, the point. I quite like Chicago. Yeah. As a matter of fact. So you grew up in Chicago. Yeah. Your, pa- your father was not a rabbi like you are. No. My father is a psychologist. My mother is a speech pathologist. And I grew up around... Because of that, I grew up I grew up around a lot of helping, like helping others, um, and also obviously a certain intellectual depth. Um, I'm often accused of. I take it as an accusation. I don't think most people mean it as an accusation, but people think that I have um, like academic credentials, and I don't. But I grew up around that kind of talk, and I grew up around books were in my home. And right, you're accused of having too good a vocabulary for right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And and also people assume that I have some type of professional credentials, which I don't. Um, my only credentials are my rabbinic ordination from 770. But obviously, I did grow up around that language and that that worldview, and. Uh, that really shaped the way that I think. So even in terms of you speaking a lot, using a lot of psychological terms. Right, I do. Framework, that's where right. you grew up. Like, that's right. a product. Of- and, and what's interesting, people will ask me about like modalities of therapy, for instance, and I'll be like, I don't know. And they'll get like offended. Like, well, why don't you know? Don't you purport to be somewhat of an expert in that area? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like I make sports references also when I'm teaching, if that's the metaphor that will make my point so i'll make movie references movie sometimes. references psychology references uh, literature whatever it is whatever metaphor will make the point so i'm and i'm not purporting to be an expert in any of those areas i'm a dilettante which means uh means a dabbler means somebody who knows a little tiny bit about everything i can feign expertise in almost any subject if you don't make me talk more than 30 seconds. Understood. Well, so in, on some of these subjects, you've spoken way more than 30 seconds. True. Right, and people... But I didn't really speak about those subjects. I used <clears throat> some of the language that comes from those subjects and then spoke about the subject that I actually have studied, which is Torah Perfect. and Chassidus. So I didn't really... I'll just put it like this. I, I didn't really have any 
real proper formal education um, on, until I got, I think, old enough where I could sit a little bit more. So um, when I did properly start learning, I had some basics, like real basics. When you properly, when you started learning what, Torah? Yeah, yeah. Like, when I actually finally sat down in my 20s, like 21, and uh, I, I, I mean, I could read. I knew how to read Hebrew, right? Right. But, um, and 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 I always had an intellectual mind, and I'd been around these ideas. Um, you know, my 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 family became more observant as we were growing up, but we were through always Chabad? became yeah through Chabad through Chabad yeah. Right. So, you know, but we were always immersed in Jewish ideas and. And so I was always familiar with the, the basic concepts and the texts and the names, but I, I just, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't sit down and focus until I was like 21, 22. And then I got like hyper-focused and I just sat down. And, and at that point you were learning in 770. Yeah. That, yeah that you've and then I just sat down and I just, I just learned for years, like doing nothing else. Like literally, I want to tell you something, the extent, like for years... So this was like on the cusp of the internet existing. Um, like, I believe I already had an AOL email account at this point, but the internet was not anything that you could spend very much time on. It was pretty, yeah, pretty primitive. So I, I, I'm saying as a disclaimer, there wasn't a lot of distraction back then, but I, I was completely oblivious like literally oblivious. I didn't know. I think this happened actually after I was married, but I did not know that the, um, was it 2000 presidential election was contested and that it went to the Supreme court. I didn't know until 10 years later. And you were in your twenties at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, no, I, I think I was married already, but I, I sat down I started learning. And even after I got married, that's all I did. I was in Koilo and, and just totally immersed myself. Were there some subjects that spoke to you more than others? Chassidus more than Talmud? Say, or I actually went through a phase of struggling with Chassidus where I was actually going to run away from Chabad and go to a non-Chabad yeshiva because I was so frustrated with Chassidus. I said, let me just learn Talmud all day and at least I'll have success. And uh, Do you remember what was frustrating you? And this was in your 20s or earlier than that? No, this was, this was in my 20s, yeah. Um, so you were into when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Learning at that point. Yes, I was into learning. I was into so this whole progression. First, it took me forever to actually sit down and read a Hebrew book. That, but then even when I started doing that, I was much more comfortable with learning Gemara, you know, Talmudic arguments and that kind of stuff. 
And, and also I found it fun. I was, I was I f when I could finally sit down and focus, I was very excited with being able to understand it. That was very, it was a certain amount of uh, enjoyment. Enjoyment, pleasure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is pleasure. a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and I had the opposite with, with Chassidus, with the spiritual, mystical teachings I just found, for whatever reason, I don't remember what was... No, no pun intended. What was mystifying me about it, but you know, to find mysticism <laughs> mystifying. But I remember being frustrated to the extent that there was a very real discussion that I was going to leave Crown Heights and go study. And people who hear, who know me, and they hear that they they can't fathom that that was ever a consideration. But it, but it was, and I I think it was basically my 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 sense of belonging more of almost like tribal loyalty that kept me uh, but not Zabat. the learning itself why but you don't remember what your frustration was with no that. i just remember that i was i wasn't understanding it the way that i wanted to right can i share mine because for a me, frustration with, with learning no with that specifically so when i was in yeshiva with frustration yeah, exactly. with i enjoyed learning very much uh -huh. and gemara i enjoyed tremendously um the back and forth and you know, being able to look up different opinions and different ways of understanding it. And I was um, I was a, a relatively good student. And I was so... During the morning part of Hasidus, I usually slept if I came in. Yeah, out. I mean, it's early. It's like 7.30, right. a lot of... And guys, at the end of yeah. the day, um, I often was hiding a Gemara learning. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't understand these subjects, talking about levels and different levels. I mean, you could be hiding a comic book. But I could be hiding anything. But, but no, you were I, hiding a Gemara. Yeah, I often would be still interested in something that I'd learned earlier. Earlier so, in the day. Earlier in the day. Right. And I'd prefer to work that out. I don't think anyone would peg you for that <laughs> guy. That's very interesting. Right. And today, I'm, I'm much... I, what's interesting, today I'm much more likely to, to open learn. a, a safer right. of this. Exactly. But it just, it felt completely, completely you should start irrelevant. A I should start a Gemara Shir. Yeah. Probably. You should give a Gemara Shir online. <laughs> we tried a couple of Chassidus. Uh, those were actually good. The yeah, I those were great. The people, until today, people tell me how much they enjoyed that. Good. We should uh, maybe do more. We should do more. Of those. Yeah. In, in terms of, um, you're saying about starting Gemara Shir. The Gemara, even though there were components that were irrelevant to me, Right, irrelevant does this happen to that? The subject matter was very interesting. Right. It was fascinating the way different people can view it differently and explain it and trying to understand where they were coming from. All of that I enjoyed very much. Mm -hmm. And then when we got to Hasidic philosophy and they're saying God's emanating light coming from here right. and coming into right. this world. Right. And the soul has this many levels. I'm like, what are you talking? Why, yeah. am, I, why am I sitting here taking you seriously? You're, yeah. you're shaking and saying something about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to sit there and pretend. That, so I've gotten nothing from it. I didn't understand it. At best, I can give you a memorization. At best. And even that often not because yeah. I find it interesting. Was that what was frustrating you? I, just, I only shared that... Uh, See if maybe you, you had something I, similar. I, I don't remember what, what my thoughts were about why I was frustrated. Um, maybe it, it could have even been that I wasn't even comfortable with the vocabulary because it's a different 
set of terminology and maybe I didn't know what the words meant. I just remember being very frustrated that I'm opening up a Gamoda and I can spend hours and I can follow it and I feel a sense of accomplishment and I'm learning to see this and I don't know what it's saying. I don't know what it means. It wasn't that, oh, I know what it means and it's not for me. No, I didn't. I don't know what it's saying. Right. I mean, even, even if you're able to translate the words, <clears throat> you had no idea what it was saying. Yeah. 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 And how did that change? I, I don't remember a specific epiphany, but I do know that there was a process where, and this is just for me. This is just for me. I'm not saying this is the definition of chassidus. But for me, it clicked for me that, hold on a second. This is a language... Uh, for describing reality. And I guess in, in many ways, to me, it was like, it's, it's a way of categorizing, almost like a taxonomy of how to how to, how to label things and understand what they are so that you can understand the world around you. And when I started to see it like that, in other words, it's not a, it's not a separate subject from reality. It is a particular framework within which to understand reality. And then it was like, it started to click. Was it, Does that make sense, what I just yeah, said? Yeah, because it started to become very relevant. Yeah, extremely relevant, because what, what's more relevant than reality? And if somebody gives you tools to be more clear about reality, then, I mean, that's, that, that's the definition of relevance. Right, 100%. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense, Yeah, what you're saying. Okay, so this is, so, so you're learning, you're throwing yourself into learning. At what point did the teaching kick in? See, I've always been a teacher my whole life. You know, when I was a little, little kid, uh, I, I don't think I was older than five. I had a little Torah scroll, one of those toy Torah scrolls. I don't remember where I got it. Maybe it was at a Simchas Torah, um, but I, I had it when I was a little kid. And I took a tissue box, a Kleenex box, and I made an Oren Kodesh, an ark. And I put it in the closet of the playroom. I remember the house where we lived. There was a playroom, and there was a closet. And I put the tissue box on a little table in the closet, and I put my paper Torah scroll in that tissue box, you know, propped up, standing up. And I would, I would play rabbi. I would be rabbi. And I guess I would take it out and I would open it up and pretend to read from it and put it back. Maybe I'd give a sermon. I don't remember exactly what right. I, how I played it, but I remember distinctly being four or five years old and, and playing that, you know, playing rabbi. And that was always like my personality of, you know, in a lot of ways, I was a very insufferable child. Um, I'm, a, I'm an oldest child, which already means that I am 
have a propensity towards being precocious and you know acting a little bit um you know how 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 children who are um verbally precocious who have a, a disproportionate uh, ability to express themselves verbally tend to have this obnoxious quality of hanging out with adults uh, but they they're not intellectually or emotionally deep enough to have anything relevant to share with the adults but it's who they prefer to spend time with yeah so i was always <clears throat> kind of like that and um so my way of interacting with peers was always sort of in the mode of a teacher offering sagacious advice <laughs> or stand-up comedian teacher or that. comedian sure. the, th those two roles um not so good with the small talk and the you know just sitting around shooting the breeze right like the, i know what you mean you know what i mean so that's definitely part of my my makeup right people may think if they they're just watching you talk that if they met you you'd be the correct talking so to everyone i tell people if you find me standing behind a microphone in a room full of 200 people you're finding me at my most natural and calm and comfortable. If you come over to me and you try to speak to me one-on-one, -on -one, I'll try to do it because it's the Society polite thing, thing to do <laughs> and it's the compassionate thing to do, but it's very hard for me. Very hard. Yeah. I don't think you're the, um, you're the only one, but... You didn't. You didn't have to get a, a get over a fear of public speaking. In that case, I get nervous before almost every time that I speak publicly. But once I get up there, I'm fine. But you know the worst thing is, <clears throat> so I don't like talking to people one on one, and I get nervous before every time I speak. So you know what? One of the worst things, and it happens to me like all the time is when I'm about to go on and someone will come over and want to speak to me. Right, so you already have the nerves of right. what you're going towards. And it's already something that I'm really not good at. Yeah, yeah I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you realize that it wasn't only you who enjoyed um, the role of teacher, but it was also the student who enjoyed the role of being taught by you? So... Um, you know, it's interesting. The first time I spoke publicly was by accident. I was, this when I was a Bachar in 770, and we went on Talucha. Talucha is when the yeshiva students from Lubavitch will go out. It's Yom Tif, it's a Jewish holiday, so we don't drive, everyone's walking. And we'll walk all around the city to different synagogues and teach, you know, give a speech, a sermon, whatever. And it, there's a whole, you know, pomp and circumstance surrounding it. And it's like a ritual that you, you do. So I went with a group to Bensonhurst, and we we're going to speak in some shul. Uh, it was uh, on Pesach, on, 
and Shvisha Pesach. So, um, interesting. I went with a group of friends. I was not the one who was going to speak. You ever go on Talucha, Ali? I did as a kid. Okay. But it was much different. We would go, it felt like we were walking with groups of 30 or 40 people and just praying in a different shul. Were you aware that someone was speaking when you got there? You weren't even... Uh, no. It, okay. No. So the the point is that somebody speaks. Got it. But it was only one guy. It's not like right. everybody speaks. One guy speaks. And there's a whole group that goes. And yeah, sometimes I did as a it child, is. When I was six, yeah. seven, eight, okay. nine. So when you were a kid, you're probably more aware of the, the march to the Correct. shul. And then when you got there, you probably played tag in the exactly. parking lot. Okay. Yeah. But what you do is you, you go in a group. I think the group I went with wasn't such a big group. It was maybe 10 guys. But um, so you get there and somebody speaks. And the rest of them are there for moral support. So we got there and I was not supposed to speak. I was not the speaker guy. And uh, we got there and we found out nobody there spoke English. So I said to my friend who was supposed to speak, like, you know that these guys don't speak English, right? He's like, what? No, I didn't know that. No, they're a bunch of old Russian guys. You speak Russian? No. Well, they understand Yiddish. Can you speak Yiddish? So my friend was like, ah, no. So we're like, we walked here eight miles. What are we supposed <laughs> to do? So I'm like, you want me to try to speak to them? I mean, I don't know Russian. I go, I can speak in Yiddish. So they're like, okay, go ahead and try it. So my first, it was totally... Uh, impromptu, unprepared, but my first public speaking, uh, my first foray into public <laughs> speaking was in Yiddish in a shul in Bensonhurst. And I spoke about Kriyas Yamsuf, about the splitting of the Red Sea. So that, that was my first. Do you remember how it was received? And nothing, no one threw right. tomatoes and nobody gave a standing ovation. It was like, whatever. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I spoke again soon after that. My first paid speaking engagement was in Munster, Indiana. I was already on Schlichus. So I was a Schlich. And, it's like a Schlich in Milwaukee, right? It's in Milwaukee. Much. Very good. Right. Excellent. Okay. So I was anyways teaching. That's what I was doing. I was giving classes all day. So it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with talking in public. That's what I was doing. I was giving classes. Some small groups, some large groups, some one-on-one, -on -one, but I was teaching all day. So I guess it, the word got out, oh, he gives a good class. So um, Eliezer Zamanov from Munster, Indiana, brought me, and I think he paid me like $100 for gas or something like that. <laughs> That was the whole honorarium. And I spoke there. It was before Rosh Hashanah. It was like before the high holidays. I think it was 2006. I could look it up. I could look it up. I, I had the date. But I think that was my first paid speaking engagement. And he like gave me a good review on some <laughs> shluchim email group. And then after that, people, more people would bring me out. And then from there, it just became like a part of my life. At, at, at one part, part of my life, at one point, I, I was traveling like crazy. Like, this is why you were still in Shluchas. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I was, I mean, it just evolved. Uh, 
I think I've, I can't even add it now, but it's in the thousands, how many different speaking engagements. So it happened very organically. One guy asks you to speak, he gives you a review, other people keep yeah. calling. Yeah. So I met you, actually not that um, long afterwards, probably in 2012 or 2013, when someone, not when I met you in person, I learned of you through your book, God of Our Understanding. Yeah. So when, when and how did that come about? I wrote that in, uh, when, well, it came out in 2010, but I think I wrote it in like 2009. Um, I had a group in Milwaukee for uh, Jewish recovery, men, men who would get together. I created this group of guys who were Jewish, but mostly not religious, but were very spiritual because of the program of recovery. Right. And we would get together and learn together. And so NPR heard about it and they interviewed me about it, National Public Radio. And they did a story about it. This is back in 2007 or 2008. So NPR did a story on it. And then they were like, okay, so what's going to be with this? How, how large was the group? Ten guys gotcha. on a good day. But it was regular. Yeah, it was every week, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. And, and it's the most captive audience. Yeah, yeah. Having people in recovery. Yeah, it's the, it's the dream audience for a rabbi. That's what I tell all, all my colleagues. So NPR asked me what's going to happen. Like, what are you going to do with this? You have this thing going on. Where, where does it go from here? I said, well, I'm writing a book. It's coming out soon. So they're like, oh, okay, great. Now, I, that just came out spontaneously. I had no thought of writing a book, but it sounded like a good answer to that question. What are you doing? Right. Creating a book, right? <laughs> and I thought maybe they'll cut that part out of the interview, but they didn't. And in, in, it's like a five-minute piece, and in that piece, they, they include the thing, oh, he's, he's writing a book very soon. So I'm like, oh, no. NPR said I'm writing a book. So I took it very seriously. Like NPR said, I'm writing a book. What, are I going to make them into liars? <laughs> I don't know why. I just, I felt that that was like, maybe it was pride. Right. Like Ironically, peacock. it was you who said. What? <laughs> Ironically, it was you who said you're writing a book. Yeah, I they said it. They shared it. So it wasn't that. I said it because it sounded like the right thing to say in the conversation. Sometimes I'll do that, like in a conversation, just for the sake of the flow. You say the thing, it's like chat GPT. Okay. See, I know how the AI thinks because often I think that way. You just say the thing, you know, ChatGPT is a language model. It doesn't know what it's saying. It's just saying what sounds good. Right. Okay. right. So sometimes I'll just say. You don't want to let your secrets out. What? I said, you want to let your secrets out. I'm kidding. Okay. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. It's okay. I mean, there's no secrets here. But uh, so it just sounded like the logical thing. But then after I said it, um, I was like, well, if I don't do it now, then it's not true. Right. I can't. I like to say things that sound like they should be true but i don't like to say things that are not true so right then i needed to make it true i understood so then i wrote the book <laughs> that's why i wrote the book and then the book came out and then you read the book right so i didn't realize i met you so early into your um when when i came across the book i assumed that you were known for a while. This book was around for a while. I didn't, I didn't understand that 
you had wrote that book maybe two years before I, I picked it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm just trying to think. I wrote it in 2007, I think. Truth is, I think I wrote it in 2007 or 2008. Yeah, but it came out definitely in 2010 because right. I was in Pittsburgh already when it came out. Oh, I got it. So at that point, you moved. You were no longer Shliach. Right. Then anymore. I was in Pittsburgh. Right. So at that point, you were writing and speaking. Yeah, and I was traveling a lot. The, the, the speaking thing really picked up, and I went everywhere, like all over, like South Africa, Australia, like all over the whole world, and like... I was really traveling a lot. That became my bread and butter was the traveling and speaking. Right. I mean, that's, that's all you were doing at that point. That's all I was doing. Right. 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 And I didn't have soul words. I didn't have any of that. So it was all traveling and speaking. Right. And then that's when I, when I met you in person was probably t- for the first time 2014 or 2015 at JLI. Yeah. And then at some point in time, you came to South Miami. Um, I forget the name of the uh, shliach there. He was a tall... Thinner guy, really tall, maybe six four, six five, but I'm not remembering his name. And you spoke at his uh, Chabad house. When did I? Speak? Maybe Coral Gables or something else. I remember his name Coral at some Gables. point. Okay. So, but when I when I read your book, I was very taken by it because of the fact that it resolved something that I was struggling with. It almost felt like in choosing recovery, I had to abandon. Judaism in some way. You had felt that way. That's why I felt because and the book, the language was very, uh-huh. the language was very different. Some of the ideas felt very different. Right. And to me, it was like, okay, I, what was I abandoning? It wasn't Jewish practice at that point. It wasn't very much of Jewish practice. Mm-hmm. Right. Going back to 2013, 2012 was probably when I got the book for the first time. 2013. I bought a ton of copies and started giving it out to people because I was moved. I was moved by it, and finally, interestingly enough, which I didn't know how the book was formed, we started a little group in Miami um, with Rabbi Schneer Kaplan, where I just saw him yesterday at the aisle. Oh, very cool! No, not yesterday. Two days ago, we started a group in my office where he was the one who gifted me the book. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure of it. Actually, he gifted me the book. And then we started a group where a number of Jewish people in recovery started coming and we would have a a shir together, a class. And I would say over time, it kind of continued on and off until COVID, that class. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, It was on and off, but it continued for a while. I remember um, when I, I remember our last get together we had, we were talking about the fact that there were lockdowns in other countries and joking whether we may be oh, wow. locked down and then... We ended up, and we did a few on Zoom, but it didn't. Uh, it didn't take off. Um, it didn't take off after that. But I, I think towards the end, it certainly was an old Jewish. There were a number of non-Jews who uh, who came as well, different sizes, but it was a nice little group, probably about the same, ten people or so, and connecting also Judaism and recovery. But the first place I saw that was in that book, and I said, "Oh, here are a lot of ideas that I've learned, and here I'm seeing it within Judy and." within Judaism and some new ideas that you introduced me to throughout the course of the book and then seeing the ideas in recovery. And what was neat about it was that there were recovery concepts that you explained that landed for me better than they did from recovery. I actually remember one of them. So 
it, it felt to a degree when that this term God of our understanding was this passive instruction, the way people spoke about it. Mm-hmm. And almost like, oh, it can be whatever you want it to be. Not right. almost. The doorknob can be yeah, your higher power. Yeah, they literally said that. People say that. People yeah. say that. Yeah. People say the doorknob can be your higher power. Make your cat your higher power. Why don't you make the group? Just have a higher power. And I recognize that there's truth to that as far as step two is concerned. That it, step two doesn't introduce God. It just says there's a power greater than yourself, which could whatever be for sanity. Yeah. And at that point, just yeah. let's right. take it one step at a time. You, as long as it's not you. Yeah. As long as it takes you away from self-will. Yeah. Right. But then you pointed out something which the contradiction was sitting inside me, but I hadn't been bold enough to articulate it, was that we actually make certain claims about this higher power. We call him caring. We say he has a will. Like there are some very strong... Meaning the program. The 12-step the program, program, the 12-step program implicitly itself. makes certain claims, theological claims. Correct. Even though it is non-sectarian and there's no official theology, but it's implicit in the steps. that, Like you said, that God is caring. Right. Because if you're going to give your life and will over to the care of God, he must be caring, right? Right. You and refer then, to him as a power. He must be powerful. Right? He must so have the, a will. He must have a will. Yeah. <laughs> right. So a lot of ideas. And I think you spoke about that in the book. In the book. And I said, yeah, like this whole idea of doorknob. Someone is saying this to make themselves comfortable, but it's actually antithetical to the 12 steps. So I also found there was, um, it wasn't only Judaism that I felt you were able to bridge a gap to, but also 12 steps that I felt you were able to explain it to me. And that's why I was comfortable giving the, the book out to many people. But I did not realize that... It was so early on in, uh, in after the book was released that I came across it. Yeah. Very neat. So, oh, so you're doing this, you're speaking, you're traveling the, the yeah. country, yeah. speaking regularly. And then when did that turn into Soul Words? Soul Words is very recently. So I was going around speaking. I, I have never like quantified this, but I, I, I think... I was I was traveling a lot. I was speaking a lot, thousands of speaking engagements. And uh, what's interesting, by the way, because you mentioned uh, God of our understanding, is that sometimes people would think that that's what I spoke about. And they'd be like, oh, when I need a speech about recovery, I'll book you. And it's like, no, actually, I rarely was giving speeches about that. Rarely. The book was the book, but the going around speaking was like everything else. It was just general, spiritual, whatever, whatever topic that people wanted. It could have been the holiday or the Torah portion or anything, whatever. Um, Yeah. So I was doing that a lot. And all the videos that existed were on other platforms. I didn't have my own platform. I figured, what do I have to have my own platform for? Just if there's a video, you give it to some other site and let them put it on there and people will see it. Right. But there was no place. That you were bringing everyone back into. No yeah, community. exactly. Was there was no community. There was no, by the way, the whole notion of viewing it as a community, as a virtual community is, is very recent for me. Like this year, it finally clicked for me that that's what it is. But. Right. You're a rabbi with no. Um, it was like literally the no brick and mortar traveling there. preacher from the old stories, you know, the itinerant preacher who's going from town to town. That That's what it was. And not only I had no brick and mortar, I didn't even have a virtual home to bring people back to. I didn't just have right, no brick and mortar home. I didn't even have a virtual presence to say, come to this place. It was basically 
I, I travel around and you'll find me when you find me. And if you want to see videos of me online, it's on other people's websites. I actually even had people who were more than one person actually who would travel, you know, like uh, deadheads <laughs> yeah, or fish heads. And right. they would come to my different gigs around the country. Neat. Yeah. Because that's the only way that people could find me is just go to wherever I was speaking. So then, but even that to get your schedule probably wasn't so easy. They'd have to see who publicized it. it, it yeah, they had to be very uh, motivated to even find that schedule. Yeah. <laughs> so then I guess that I came back to New York in what was it, 2017 uh, for a schlichus in the five towns. Come out of the five towns is there already for 27 years, I think, 28 years, maybe. Um, and it's a very thriving, very, um, it's, it's a Chabad house, but it's, it's has many, many programs. It's a very large community. And so they brought me to start giving classes locally to give classes there with the understanding that I need to travel still. So we made that arrangement that I would have my classes locally. So I have like a place to hang my hat. I have a home. I have a shlichus. Um, but I'm not tied down. Like I'm not the Shabbos rabbi. I'm not, I'm not the rabbi. I'm, you know, I have my classes that I give, but I'm, I'm not stuck. So then shortly after that, I realized, okay, now that I settled down and I have like a place, I need to create a virtual space. And that's when we started um, SoulWords, started a website. It was right after I came to New York. So we're talking about five years ago. Right, it's very recent. Yeah. And I just started putting my my own videos on my own website. Instead of giving the videos away, I just, one by one, every time I would lecture, and I was lecturing all the time. I still do lecture all the time. So it's just a matter of... So each one of those you were getting, you were, record, you were trying to make sure you recorded and uploaded somewhere. I guess I've heard many of those. Think of one, you spoke uh, in front of a girl's school at the aisle and you put the uh, um, well, speech every, up there. Everything yeah. that's on Soul Words basically is something... You're doing for someone else. I'm doing for, yeah, I mean... No, that's not true. Some things I'm doing just for the website, but most of the stuff, it's a, there's an audience, there's a, there's a context where it's happening. Um, but I'm, now I have a oh, place to put Oh, so even when you did that, everything. you didn't see it necessarily as a place. You continue to imagine you're traveling as the main thing. Right, correct. And saying, hey, why don't I have a repository of information? Exactly, so, exactly. Right, so it was more of a database than a community. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Like I told you, it was really recent that it clicked for me. And we always come back to the subject of fundraising whenever we're together. But the fundraising is what helped it click for me. We've spoken about this many times. Seems like we always come back to this subject. That fundraising is not just about money. Of course, it's about money. If you don't have flour, meaning 
material stuff, then right. you can't proliferate if, Torah study. But if you don't have dough, yeah, if you don't have dough, exactly. Yeah. You know, I got a night job in the bakery. I need the dough. <laughs> I need the dough. I need the dough. What do you want from me? I need the dough. Okay. So, <laughs> um, but as I was fundraising, so on two counts. First of all, when there's the big donors and you have to tell them, what are you doing? I mean, if it's just, I'm archiving a bunch of stuff so that it exists. It's not, it's not such a compelling, so compelling narrative. Right. But if you say <clears throat> that, no, we're talking about thousands of people whose sense of belonging, where I go to get my inspiration on a regular basis, the place where I feel understood, the place where I get spiritual guidance that resonates with me personally, the, the person who I consider to be a, the teacher who, who I trust, that there's thousands of people who feel that way about what I'm doing, that's a much different narrative than I'm just cataloging and archiving. So this is your accountability strategy. You tell NPR you're going to write a book, you write a book. Yeah. You tell a donor you're going to build a community, you build a community. Right. Right. Okay, it wasn't conscious, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that is a consistent theme. Oh, but the other part of it is, so then the community is, there's why fundraising made the community thing click for me is because there's the small donors small donors are the people who give 18 dollars mm. and uh, you, and you remember that i was very very proud about the fact that last time i did a campaign 1200 or so donors yeah it was crazy i mean we had a goal of seeing and it was a dream it was like really ambitious or really really aspirational could we get a thousand donors and we had 1200 we had over 1200 unique donors cool. which is pretty yeah. cool so I began to realize that to get 1,200 people to give, it can't just be, you know, give me some money so I can pay for videographers and, and servers to have this stuff online. It has to be, I mean, the word, the word is community. It has to be pay into something that not just you receive benefit from, but something that you belong to. Right. You belong to this. Right. Right. And so the, uh, the fundraising really did help in a lot of ways for that idea to gel in my mind that this, this is a community, albeit a virtual one. Although I do have dreams of doing some actual events in, in person. physical space in person. Yeah. Yeah. I want to make like retreats and you have a lot of greenery back here yeah you have a lot of space to... <laughs> <laughs> could do a tent thing yeah you could put like no you know what you can do back here uh, so it was set up um previously we'd have to finish setting up a little the bit rv more. garage the rv so all the land is was dug up and replanted in such a way that it shouldn't get ruined by rvs driving over it it's flat so rvs can drive comfortably over it without mm -hmm. getting ruined and you won't see it in the camera but if you see all the way back there towards the end of the property you see poles I yeah mean, i did can, yeah yeah so those poles oh, those are power they're meant for power the power has not been run but they were set up so you can park an rv there exactly exactly okay park so more than one rv multiple RVs. we could have like a rv fest over here <laughs> right right that's a thought yeah so i mean we did one of those covid it was one of the first um the first parties 
The first in-person parties. Yeah, we had like a... In-person yeah. events. It was by invitation. It was a smaller group. But right. it wasn't that small. I mean, no, no, but 40, it was, 50 people. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice we did that, that event. And then COVID obviously changed your business as well because then... Or changed your organization as well. Very much the traveling. So. Very much so. Yep. Yeah. So today you do not much traveling. I still travel a lot more than a normal person, but not a quarter as much as what I used to do. And also because now I'm in New York the past five years, um, I would say 80 to 90% of my speaking engagements are a drive away because just right. that's where the people are, the metro area. So I'm, I'm not getting on a plane as often as I used to. Okay. So in the spirit of saying what you do and then working to create that happen, what is it that Soul Words is um, creating in the world? What's, what's it doing? I understand that the community, yeah. is it just for the community itself that you're offering something? No. Or is there a larger objective? No, obviously it's, it's beyond our little community. Um, there, there is an objective. I mean, there is a mission statement. It sounds corny, at least it sounds corny to me, but you know, the whole thing of soul words, that really is, that's a real concept. Soul means the energy. Words are the containers. Words limit, but they limit in a way that gives expression. They reveal through concealing. You have to pick something or you've picked nothing. Right. Right. <laughs> so um, you, ta you take the soul, which is sort of abstract, intangible, maybe even um, impossible to express, on its own, and you limit it, you put it in a box, which inherently means a certain, you lose a certain... Right. You know which word I love? In which language? word? Ineffable. Ineffable. Yes. Yeah. That's a great word. Yeah, it is. That is a great word. Yes. So spirituality is inherently ineffable. Ineffable. Yeah. It is... Which, it's like, maybe I shouldn't say, it's uneffable. What is, what is it? Uneffable. No, <laughs> oh, oh, you're saying it like a pun. Okay, right. yeah. Like you can't yeah. mess with this. Ineffable. Yeah. <laughs> ineffable for those who are... Right, you can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. Right. Uh, ineffable should, means it's something that you can't put words to. It cannot be... Verbally expressed. Verbally expressed, right. Right, it's, right. but you're saying it like a double meaning. Right, uneffable. You can't mess it up, right. <laughs> Until you do express it in words, in which right. case you can totally mess it up. And that's the occup occupational hazard of giving verbal expression to pure holy ideas right so you leave the pure holy ideas alone you can't mess them up now if you leave them but alone nobody can get it nobody can get it right so the occupational hazard is i'm gonna have to do stuff right now that automatically inherently is going to create a risk that we're not going to get this right that we're going to dumb it down that we're going to get it wrong that we're going to this was the parable they used to say when they, they told us many times when we were kids about the king who had a sick, sick child and the doctor told him if he took his crown jewel Very good, yeah. and he crushed it. Is, yeah. is that the, yeah. it's putting words to, is, is that maybe what the crown jewel? This is the classic parable. Being crushed up? Of the question of in the early years of the Hasidic movement. The, the question was, how, how do you have the right to take these spiritual secrets and 
to put them out there. Um, it should be ineffable. So why right. you? Which would which would also yeah. mean kind of personally experienced, maybe, because. Meaning, well, it should be accessed by those who have personal experience. Of well, it. that's God as because we understood Him. God as we understood Him. We presumably <laughs> we, were, we were talking before right. about God of our understanding. Right. You know what Chuck C says in New Pair of Glasses. He says God as we understood Him makes no uh, claim that we could understand God because He's infinite. He can't be understood. What it Rather, what it refers to is the necessity of personal experience. In other words, this is something that is experiential, it's something, therefore, that is unique to me. It's peculiar and idiosyncratic to me. And I could use words to try to transfer it to you, but just know that it's not the real thing. That's what God as we understood him means. It's like, I'm going to use some words here as a sort of like uh, to fill a space as a placeholder, but really, right. that's not the real thing. Yeah, as soon as you go there, you're already, you're already messing with it. Right? It's like trying to describe a chocolate cake. You can put words to it, but it's not. You think a chocolate cake is ineffable? In some ways, what are you going to say? Meaning, what, what am I going to tell you that's going to give you the experience or really prepare If I you? haven't had one, you're saying. Right, exactly. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah. This chocolate cake is amazing. It's creamy. It's light. Right. Okay, so those are, those are words. But the experience is to eat the chocolate cake. So that's the... And once I start doing it, if I start putting words to it, then when you do experience it, you're, it's already a little tainted, the experience. Right. You can't give somebody an authentic experience through words. So that was the kind of the debate over the Hasidic movement, is here you are giving People words. People who know, know. No. Right. And if you don't know, telling you about it's not going to help. And the Baal Shem Tov said, no, let's do this differently. Right. So the Baal Shem Tov was the one who began popular, uh, popularizing, or I don't think the word really should be popularizing, but um, he started taking mystical concepts and putting them into uh, a format that was accessible by the uninitiated. And then each of his successors and subsequent generations pushed the envelope more story you're referring to took place with the Baal Shem Tov's successor. There was a particular affront, affront that offended somebody was that the students used to write the mystical teachings on papers. It wasn't even for publication. It was just for their own use. And one of these papers was flying down the street and tumbling in the gutter. And somebody saw it and was very taken aback. He said, you're taking the secrets of the Torah and causing them to be disgraced so the Alter Rebbe the first Rebbe of Chabad who was, who was a student of the student of the Baal Shem Tov, 
defended the practice with a with a the the story parable, the parable yes. about there was a there was a king and the king had a son and the son became sick and nobody could cure him and then one wise man appeared and said there is one cure for what your son has what is it it is a certain jewel that has a medicinal property you have to crush that jewel and you make a solution out of it and then you drink that medicine and uh, that cures the problem your son has so the king says great let's do it and money is no object and the the wise man says, well, it's such a rare stone, I really only know of one place to procure it from. He says, where? He says, it's the center jewel of your crown. So he's like, you know, a dilemma. Should I ruin my crown and save my son? He's like, ruin the crown, save my son. He says, but hold on a second. It's not so simple. He's so sick at this point that we may crush the jewel for naught because I can't even, you have to take this orally, and I, I don't even think he'll swallow it. It'll, most of it will just dribble down his chin. The king says, you know what? Risk it, because if it will get into his throat and save him, then it's worth it. So it's worth the risk to take the, the crown jewel and crush the crown jewel. It's worth it. So, I mean, the, the Altareb has said it as a parable. He didn't even explain uh, what it means, because it was understood, but I'll just spell it out, that the crown jewel is, the crown is the Torah. The crown jewel, the special jewel with, which has special beauty, are the secrets of the Torah, mysticism, Kabbalah. Um, crushing it means making it available in ways that regular people can access those ideas. Putting words. Putting words to it, yeah. And regular words, right. not just the Kabbalistic jargon which is very much it's a it's a it's an argo it's an expertise it's a, it's an expert language it's a the kabbalistic terminology is not accessible language uh it's like reading a medical journal like you, today you can go online you can you can read academic articles medical journals i mean you can't make heads or tails of it, it doesn't right. mean anything to you if, if you're not versed in that in that world that's what Kabbalah is like. So you can't you can't make any sense of what it means. So it's it's safe. <laughs> Kabbalah <laughs> is safe. Like no one no one can really misinterpret it unless they're going to really take liberties, you know, because you don't know what it's talking about. But but Chassidus is written in in metaphors and examples and um, using the human experience as the as the reference point for spiritual phenomena. And it's dangerous because people might actually misunderstand it. Happens all the time. Yeah, sure. But uh, the argument was that if the prince doesn't get the medicine, he's going to die. So the argument was that we're not proliferating these secrets for the fun of it. We're doing it because if we don't, we're going to lose the Jewish people. That was the argument. That it is life or death. Which brings me back to, you're talking about the recovery audience. Yes. Okay. So the truth is that spiritual teachings are life and death for everybody. But, you know, most people don't see it that way. A recovery right. crowd definitely sees spirituality as life and death. It's no joke. I'm not doing this for fun. I often repeat your line that an addict is someone who for... Who, who for spirituality is a necessity rather than a luxury. Right. But really... The truth is, spirituality a is a necessity, necessity for everybody, but go and try to convince most people of that. Right. So, But for someone who's an addict, if they don't have that spirituality, their addiction right. will take... 
right. complete control over them. Right. In terms of in terms of this metaphor, now that the uh, crown jewel has been crushed, so to speak, the medicine has been made available yeah. to the masses. Um, is the uh, king's son still very sick? Well, you know there are relative there are relative levels. Um, I mean, I can answer that question by saying, if he's completely fine now then it could be argued that we can stop with the medicine. There was an acute crisis in the times of the Balshamtiv, which I don't want to get into at length, but anyone who studies the history of that time, certain exacerbating factors, particularly among Ashkenazic Jewry, um, there were massacres, the Hamaniki massacres, and poverty and within the Jewish community there was very uh, strong division boundaries between different Jews a lack of unity a lack of mutual respect a lot of disenfranchise disenfranchisement um, and it was a crisis period so the Baal Shem Tov came and he averted that crisis through teaching these, these teachings. So was that crisis averted? Yeah, that crisis was averted. The Baal Shem Tov succeeded. But now there's a new crisis, which justifies the... Right, the continued availability of the medicine. Correct. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting metaphor. Yeah. The idea of... Uh, idea of medicine because it's it's medicine right but it's spiritual in nature in you know i talk every once in a while about ayahuasca and for the tribes there that is their spirituality right the tribes which have retained it in the amazon they call it a medicine there there they refer to it as the medicine right this is the medicine for our people but when it gets out People refer to it as spirituality. Oh, this is spirituality or religion or things right. like that. But they're not necessarily looking at it that way. Right. They're just looking at it as as their medicine. Right. The, well, but yeah. maybe where this right, maybe where this like the the rubber would meet the road on something like this is would a rabbi serve a medicine? Is that the rabbi's role to serve a medicine? So it depends how you look at it. Well, it depends on who he's dealing with. It depends on the situation. Everything is context. Things are appropriate or inappropriate based on context. Right. If you said in the West, right, if you said here that um, the rabbi is serving medicine, as a religious practice, oh, what? That's medicine. You go to a doctor to serve medicine. So over here, they'll call it a sacrament, right? Right. As a, a religious item. Right, a religious ritual. A religious ritual. Right, which already... Which may alienate some people. Not only that, yes, it alienates some people, but even the people it doesn't alienate, it diminishes the importance of it because it relegates it to something... Exactly. Ritualistic, which to me almost inherently implies that it's perfunctory like 
another, like, in yes. other words, like I was saying a minute ago, you're not going to die if you don't do it. Exactly. Like, it's nice, it's meaningful, it's beautiful, it's inspiring, but you're not going to die if you don't do it. Right. It's not like breathing. Right. But when you think of it as medicine... Well, then it's serious. Then it's serious. Yeah. Right. So you think of Hasidus as medicine. I, yeah. I mentioned this on the last uh, person I spoke to, Maisha Khanan, that uh, Abraham Tversky said that someone asked him, how come you send people to church basements mm-hmm. to read the 12 steps? Don't we have Tanya and Musser and all these, like within right. Judaism, it's so rich with, <laughs> it's so rich with medicines. I have to send people there. So he said, if you find me a room full of people which read the Tanya or the, or Musser, like their life depends on it, they'll send them there. Right. So maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the message yeah. that the rabbis need, need to be serving medicine. So I'll, I'll tell you like this. Meaning serve this as a medicine. In other words, why is this so yeah. relevant? Is because here we are, which is I think a lot of what you try to do, is take these Hasidic concepts right. and deliver it as a medicine. What does it mean as a medicine? For what's ailing you today, in this moment, will this be a bomb? Will this be B-A-L-M? Will this be, will this be soothing? Will this, will this be healing in some way? Right? Yeah, that's, the, that's, that, that's correct. That's what we need to bring back. The rabbi is healer, the healer is rabbi. Yeah. You know, this might be off-putting for some people to hear me speak this way, but obviously as somebody who puts out content, I do evaluate whether or not it was successful. Okay, and I have different metrics for success. It's not all about how many clicks it got. I mean, there's quality and there's quantity, but... I do pay attention. Obviously, right. I am aware. Like you're a supporter. Like you don't. The first thing you ask me is not how many views did a video get, but it is something you're interested in, right? How many people actually right. are watching, right? So, like I said, this might be off-putting to some people, but I have gone through a thought process about how popular certain things are or are not. And at least for now, where I'm at is I've made peace or I've tried to make peace with the fact that the style, the way that I teach, which is not, it's not a deliberate style. It's not like I chose to teach this way. It's, it's organic. It's just like, I, you know, this is this is how I think, and this is how I share, and this is this is who I am. So, but that style, by definition, I believe, does not have mass appeal. And and the goal is not how many people, the maximum amount of people I can reach, because it's 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 not for the masses. Who's attracted to my stuff? I mean, I, I don't have, an, I didn't pay a, a firm to come in and, and research this. And I'm sure if I wanted to spend a few hundred thousand dollars, I could get some type of real study done and tell me exactly. If I were like selling soft drinks, I would spend millions right. of dollars and I would research who is buying my soft drink, who's buying my gym shoe, who is buying my car. Right. Okay. So, but I never, re- but anecdotally, I interact with enough people in real life and online. I mean, I get emails, I get texts, direct messages. I mean, I meet people on the street. I know who's consuming my content. Ellie, would you, would you guess that there's a 
a profile, a typical profile of a person who gravitates toward my stuff? Yeah. 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 What, what, would, what kind of person would you think it is? I'd assume more female than male. Yeah, it skews more female. Correct. But yes. Yes. More female. And I assume someone more thoughtful. Yeah, someone more, more intellectual. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But maybe there's a time period also that they're going through. Meaning, so the same person going <laughs> through a more difficult period is more likely to consume your content than going through I a more peaceful I say this period. all the time. Rarely do people reach out to me on a normal day. <laughs> I have a very skewed view of the world because most people interact with me when they're having... The dark night of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, but keep going. You're, 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 so far, everything you said is correct. And I think that... Um, I think it's someone... I, I guess this goes hand in hand, but kind of the more someone gets into it, the more they'll get out of it. Meaning there are guys, let's take like a, a Jordan Peterson, okay, as an example. I saw you did a, a video on him where a lot of people may be his fans mm -hmm. simply because of the fact that, he's, that they saw his short clips or maybe these four or five minute right. um, clips where he argument or argued with someone. I mean, it's very and, shallow. I'm not saying his content is shallow. No, I'm their saying, relationship yes, with him. They couldn't articulate what his worldview is. Correct. They, they saw a few clips that right. they liked, and they're fans. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's a testament to him that he can deliver himself. He can concentrate himself right. into a, a small clip, and you can get a flavor of who he is right. or his, uh, his public persona. Whereas I don't know that that's the case with you. I don't know that if someone watches a few short clips of you, they'll really understand right. who you are and what you're trying right. to deliver. That it's it's that someone who comes back again and again and again and eventually develops an appreciation for a style of thinking, an approach to to content, to struggle. It's deeper. It's more thoughtful. It's less sensational. And why is somebody looking for it? Why is that what they're? Why is that the type of content they're looking for? I imagine they feel a need in some way. Exactly. Right. And this need, to some degree, or at least in some context, can be classified as life or death. Meaning they've come to a either they've come to a place in life, like you described before, where they're in a situation. Or they're intense people like me, like really sensitive right. and intense and like the world itself is an inhospitable mm -hmm. place for me, right? So those people are on that same wavelength where they're not looking for quick inspiration. They are looking for, to use a word here that we've been using, they're looking for medicine. Understood. Okay. So that has a certain limited reach. And like I said, I've made peace to some extent with the idea that the way that I think and the way that I share, which is people who know me in real life will tell you, okay, I will tell you something that sounds cynical, but I don't mean it to be cynical. Most public figures do not act in real life the way that you see them 
delivering a lecture or whatever. Just they don't. That's not how people, that's not how real people are. Um, and, and some people that the, the discrepancy between who they really are, and I'm not calling them like fakers. I'm just saying there's a, there's a certain <laughs> way that you speak in day-to-day life. And there's a <laughs> certain way, uh, certain affectations of, of oratory, how you present yourself. And it's a, it's a, in that context, that's how, that's how it's considered to be. That's, that's, that's the genre. That's the format. Um, I'm not really that different. Like I, I, the way that I present myself publicly, I would say is 99% the way that I would speak in, in real life. Um, so like I'm saying, it's not something that I'm deliberately doing. It just, it just is the way I am. That energy is going to resonate with people who have come to a point where they've already recognized that without a spiritual framework for viewing reality, life is just too difficult. So I don't sell anybody on that idea, on that premise. I speak to the people who are already sold on that premise. Life sold them on that premise. Pain frustration right. sold them on that premise that's and that's, that's and you're my hoping some of the medicine yeah and, and I'm, deliver I'm, some of the medicine i'm hoping hoping to be yeah uh, Hasidus is the medicine Hasidus is the medicine you're yeah. trying to deliver the prescription right right and health is spirituality the, 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 the medicine is a tool to reach health spirituality is not the tool Spirituality is the innate state of well-being that we're trying to return to. The words are the tool. Right. And if somebody's already in a state of well-being, I don't need to speak. Which is why anybody who knows me in real life knows that although I speak a lot, I don't really like to speak. I don't need to speak. I'm that kind of guy who is excited when somebody says, hey, say a few words. It's not, I'm not into that. Like, There's a purpose for it. Yeah, and, and, and the purpose always has to be, well, is there a problem here that needs to be addressed? Because if everyone's okay, let's let things be ineffable. <laughs> right? Leave it alone. Right, right. Let's, let's like even right talk. now, I'm talking with you, and I'm thinking to myself, like my intention in the back of my mind the entire time is, what am I saying that's an improvement upon silence? Because really, I don't feel like it's it's a it's a given that I should just open up my mouth and start talking that that inherently has value. I I think to myself, at least you know, some on some level, is there any value to talking right now? I mean, look, you're my friend. I I, I, I'd be happy to sit and hang out with you, but there's a camera. I am aware that there's a camera, there's a microphone in my face. I know this is being recorded. I know this is getting uploaded at some point. I know people are watching it. So I'm thinking to myself. Hopefully. Hopefully. But but I'm thinking to myself, what am I saying that will, will be healing for people? 
and that's I'm not feeling so comfortable using the word healing because I'm feeling pretentious. But in the context of our conversation so far, that's been the word that we've been using. Right. I want to be consistent with that. I'm not comfortable with yet. I feel pretentious calling healing, uh, but but I just want to use that word because that's the word we've right. been using. Is it healing? Meaning to say, uh, on the most basic level, if I'm not offering wisdom, can I at least offer validation? Like sometimes I don't have anything new to say. I don't have anything to say that you haven't heard before, but it's validating just to hear somebody say something in their own way that you also experience. You're like, oh yeah, somebody else also thinks like that. That's a lot of what I do, by the way. It's just validate someone's experience. Yeah. You know what? I uh, someone asked me for a tagline for in search of more, so I've been thinking about what that is, and I don't have the perfect words yet for it, but the concept was essentially giving permission for humans to be human. Mm -hmm. Which I guess is similar to, to validating someone's, someone's experience. I think what you do is, because you talk to a lot of different types of people and you could ask like, what's the, is there a coherent theme? Is there like a underlying common denominator? Because there's so much different stuff that you right. talk about, so many different types of people. And I think that that is pretty accurate to say, you're just looking at different aspects of being human and people using different modalities to try to, to, try to do that well. And with, with the success and with the failure, with the trial and error and... Even if people don't learn one new thing, at least they're validated by by seeing so many people who are also trying to do their best to live life and struggling with it. Right, the human, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to me that I can still get an email from someone saying, "Thank you so much for talking about porn addiction." Like I finally feel like I can talk about someone right. who struggles with it, and it's like, wow, we're in twenty twenty three. And with a couple of searches, you can find out that one of the most downloaded c content on the internet is pornography. You can kind of, someone who's in that world can kind of see, like, there's no shortage right. to content that's out there. But somehow the person in that can feel so alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's very ironic. Right. It's the most pervasive problem, and yet right. the guy going through it feels... Feels so alone. And it takes funny. someone wow. spelling it out, like, yes... When you're signing on to these sites yeah. and they're the most visited sites, right. that's other human beings. Right. Statistically, there's got to <laughs> right. be someone in the world who feels the same. <laughs> right. yeah. That's so right. funny. Right. But somehow people can still feel alone with it. Wow. Wow. But sometimes this needs to be spelled out. So yes. Wow. Yeah. It, the the irony is deeper, and it's not only with pornography. Is the stuff that bring us the most shame are are the things that make us the most human. That's like the the most common human experience is where we'll feel the most shame around it. Mm. The most common human experience is struggle, is failure, right. is regret, is mistakes, is hurting others, is feeling guilty about all of these things right. is very... The things that are the most shameful and therefore cause us to isolate and disconnect from others are the very things that are universal. 
That are universal, yes. Crazy. Right. You walk around prancing around like, I got this brand new car. Okay, that's not such a universal experience. Right. There are billions of people who will never get a car, right. never mind a brand new car. Right. But you feel so comfortable sharing this with the world. Right. Why? <laughs> it's a very, maybe a unique experience. I went on this vacation and people are well, comfortable posting that. But then to say the most human thing and feel shame. Right. And shame, I guess inherent to shame is a certain isolation. I am alone in this. It's not, the, the shame is almost struggle in solitude. If we were all struggling together, there would be, uh, let's, I mean, think about someone going through poverty may feel some shame around poverty. Mm -hmm. But if the whole town was poor, they'll just have poverty. They don't have shame around the poverty. But if the whole town was poor, but they were all hiding it because of the shame. <laughs> <laughs> they all had credit cards. <laughs> right. That's so kind they of the... <laughs> all poor, but they were all faking not being poor. Right. Yeah. If I could, I wonder what that would look like. <laughs> could you imagine such a situation? Yeah. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I'm not good with small talk. And I'm much better in a room full of hundreds of people than I am one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's a struggle for me. It, it is a struggle for me. Um, it's something that I'm, I, 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 maybe you would even classify it as a disability. But uh, it's something that I don't naturally value. And therefore, this might sound ridiculous but i'll say it with the intention in the back of my mind that perhaps someone out there will be validated by hearing it i think everybody else i feel very alone here i'm the only guy who didn't get this right i'm playing into right, what you right, right, but right. you know i don't really believe i'm the only guy if i didn't if i really thought i was the only guy i wouldn't talk about it i believe right. there's probably two guys who will relate to this and they're watching right now okay but because of that um it really took me decades. It's only, I mean, I'm not 50 yet. I'm not even 49 yet. Actually, I have a birthday coming up soon. I'll be 49. So I'm not that old. But it's only recently, like literally the past couple of years, that I'm starting to value human connection and to realize how important human relationships are to spiritual wellness because to me like people are part of the problem <laughs> the, the the problem is the world is a is a an it's an unpredictable place the world is a well at some point in my life i would class i would have classified the world as a scary place Certainly as a child, the world scared me. Um, I, I don't have that, that acute sense of the world being dangerous anymore that I had when I was a child. But definitely it's, a, it's an uncomfortable, you know, going out into the world among people, just, just the stimuli can be draining. So it's... 
you know, and then people are part of that because they'll come over to you. They'll talk to you. They'll want things from you. Right. <laughs> like, so all of that is, is draining. Um, and then spirituality is like the medicine. Well, we said it's not the medicine. The language of spirituality is the medicine. Spirituality is the, is the wellness. Right. So I need a language for spirituality to talk myself into a state of real, um, I would call it bittel, that's the Hasidic term for it, but like self-transcendence, before I can tolerate the world and the people that are in the world. So my, my goal, meaning how I achieve normalcy, is through self-transcendence. That's the way that I view it. Interacting with people is like a chore that the self-transcendence enables me to be able to tolerate long enough to be able to conform with social norms. That's how I view it. Can't there be a form of self-transcendence in the interaction? So that's what I'm only recently beginning to learn is that the ultimate self-transcendence is in the interaction and that really, it's not that I need spirituality. So it's not transcending this way, it's transcending this way. Right. Horizontal connections that... <sighs> I used to look at it like, I need to be really spiritually fit in order to be able to deal with people. Now I'm starting to realize that dealing with people is is itself spiritual. Connecting oh, with Oh, understood. Okay, that's a much different framework. Right? It's like the world is a stressful place. You got to do stuff. You got you to pay your bills. And So uh, let me get spiritual. So let me be that. spiritual enough that I won't freak out and have a <laughs> panic attack when I have to pay my bills. Right. The well, same thing. It's stressful to deal with people. So let me go meditate and be really spiritually locked in so I can go out and deal with people. That's how I looked at it for a long time. And to some extent, I still, that's my default. But I'm, I've started to realize that, and it's so unnatural for me, that connectedness, relationships, saying things to people just to validate them and hearing people's experience just to, to be validated that that itself is part of and maybe even the essence of the human spiritual wellness. Spiritual, spiritual wellness. Yeah. So if, if I ask you this question, let's imagine this conversation didn't get recorded. Right. Was there any value to it? Yeah. Yeah, because we're connecting. Right, I think so. And, and Virtually, I, I understand the point. It feels very disconnected, especially the setup I have here where the camera is very far from the screen. I feel like I'm talking to someone from across the room when I do the virtual uh, conversations. Oh, you, this is different to you than the virtual? This is much different than the virtual. See, for me, it's very interesting. People call me all day long asking, um, can I see you? Can I talk to you? I want to get an appointment with you. And um, it's always weird to me because... I don't know why anyone would want to. But you'd rather to be on the phone for that. But if I do it, 
Correct. You know exactly where I'm heading. Right. If I do do it, when in the you know rare occasions that I do meet with people, I, 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 I want to be on the phone. And people say to me, but I want you to be able to focus on me. And I've told people before, you want me to focus on you? Then please don't put me into a situation where I'm going to have to be spending 90% of my energy focusing on conforming to social norms. You want me to hear your story and to pick up on the, the ineffable energy in your story? Then please allow me to not have to make eye contact, allow me to not have to uh, you know, read your facial expressions. Let me just zone out and 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 really absorb. And you think this is unique in some way and that a lot of people don't have, let's call it a fear for lack of a better word because you described that certainly as a child that existed. So whatever term you'd use now, a discomfort, you think that's uncommon? I don't think it's super uncommon. I think that there's a lot of people like this. I don't think it's the norm. Right. When I, when I speak to people about anxiety, I'd have to say one of the most I hear about is the term social anxiety. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's up there. Or thinking about the 12 promises in the 12 steps, fear the 12 promises, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave Go us. Right. Like those, yeah. Yeah. those two. Yeah, and it's interesting because over there, it does sort of describe that the fear of people is the problem and that the spiritual awakening is going to alleviate that. But then, you know, so it's so in that context, it's speaking about connecting with other people as sort of the problem and the spirituality comes and, you know, fixes that. Right. So, you know, they say our children are our uh, greatest teachers. Yeah, right. Students are greatest teachers, children are greatest teachers. So I connected to something from um, my son a while ago, my oldest son, Samuel. I... And he was about three years old, so I would say two years ago. I dropped him off at school, and what I started noticing are the things that bothered me about things he was doing and paying attention to that stuff that's bothering me and saying, okay, what is that? What is that inside me? And I'm connecting it to what um, something you said earlier, kind of scrolling up in the conversation a little bit. So every time he went to school, he would run to his teacher. Okay. And... He also often had relationships with older kids. Okay. He had a much easier time oh. with seven-year-olds uh-huh. than he had so with bothered you. And I'm He's noticing, gravitating towards older kids and adults. Adults, but not about... Uh, where are you going with this? Not about any risk. No, no, no. exactly what I was talking about before, yeah. about the obnoxious, precocious personality. Wait, is that your oldest? Yes, he's not, he's not this way as much anymore, but it was bothering me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you said oldest, right? Yeah, earlier. the okay. little adult. Oh, interesting. The clinical term for it is a nerd. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Don't call it that. No, I'm the nerd. No, I, I'm telling you. I know, I know. I'm talking about my son. So it was bothering me. And I was wondering, why is it bothering me? Yeah. What is this thing that was bothering me? And what I noticed as I reflected on it is that... I, most of my relationships were unequal in some way. There was employer, employee, Mm -hmm. sponsor, sponsee, mentor, mentee, 
father, son, right. like all of these unequal relationships. They're vertical relationships. Exactly. Right. And on either side of it, I was You don't quite mind being above or below, Correct. as long as it's clear who's right. in which place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it was these mutual relationships more. A, a spouse. I would also a brother, add to that. A partner. Is that, it, and this, this is an area where you excel, is that being a donor, a supporter. Correct. That's another. Uh, it's, clear, it's clear what the relationship is. And there may be some reciprocation, but then, so you switch. Correct. Right. So I'm on top, you're on the bottom. Oh, and then when there's reciprocation, so then you get on the top, I'll go on the bottom. Yeah, I had but, a coach I worked with, and sometimes he would say, Ellie, can you help me with the money problem? Right. And then so I would you coach flip. him. Right. Right. Yeah, but that. to both simultaneously be at the same level of need and vulnerability. Wow. Right. Right. That was, and that's what I felt I was learning from him was I'm seeing this and it's rubbing up against me and I'm saying, hey, that exists in me as well, is that those unequal relationships. And I said, okay, I got to work on the issue with my wife, relationship with siblings, relationship with my business partner, people who are in a more equal relationship, um, equal, more horizontal relationship equals maybe the wrong word, more horizontal relationship and build it from there. Like that's, that's the work that I felt I needed to, uh, to focus in on. And now if he does it, I don't notice. I don't think he does it anymore, my son. He definitely doesn't run to his teachers anymore like that. Maybe older kids, but I don't see it. As you think teachers. that when you had that insight that somehow there was a shift in him? I think so. I maybe like, maybe he was spiritually saddled with a mission and then the mission was complete. I, I believe it's plausible. I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Meaning he had to push your buttons until you did that inner work. Yeah, and then he had no reason to do it anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, I believe that stuff happens. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. All right. This was great. Okay. Even if this wasn't recorded, I, I want to say I, uh, I very much enjoyed And this was a horizontal I think so, yeah. I think so. You know? It never, it, it didn't occur to me until the last few minutes that there was a, a relationship, you know, of teacher or relationship of donor like none of that that wasn't it felt like two friends talking so okay good hopefully that's what by the way as well. ironically that's one of the things that i found out people like about me because i've, I've started to become aware of like what i mean everyone's unique so everyone has what they offer and you know they have their their special gifts gifts yeah so recently again past couple of years i've become open enough to allow people to meaningfully compliment me because there's only thing one thing that makes me more uncomfortable than a compliment is critique don't get me wrong, critique makes me more uncomfortable, but compliments make me almost as uncomfortable as critique. And I've, I've allowed myself to be more open to allowing people to say nice things to me. And what I've started to find out about me, what people like, is they say, you know, you're like a regular guy. We find you very approachable, very non-threatening. <laughs> like, you're just, you're just you, you know, you're not, you're not so polished, you just... You know, very authentic. These are types of things that people say. And 
I, I allowed myself to absorb that and to, first of all, not, not to argue with it, but just to say, you know what, even if I don't think of myself that way, that's how they're seeing it. So there's validity to that. At least that's their experience. Their experience is valid. So I, I started to realize um, th how important this is. Because in, in ostensibly, I'm in a position of being in an inherently vertical relationship with everyone who's listening to me because I'm speaking, especially, particularly, you're talking about speaking from a place of religious authority. I mean, that's, that's literally, that's about as <laughs> high as you can, that's about as high of a horse as you can climb up on, right? Um, but what people seem to connect with is that they are not feeling that it's a vertical relationship. They're feeling it's a horizontal relationship and they appreciate the imperfection and the vulnerability. Right. I can see that. There's a, we used the word deliberate earlier, but there seems to be sometimes a wrestling with that you do in front of the audience on a topic, which I think makes people comfortable. So you have this idea, like, how am I going to understand it? How am I going to explain it? And it feels like it's happening in real time. It's very spontaneous. Right. It's very spontaneous. Even if I give a talk that I've given hundreds of times, and I have certain talks that I've given hundreds of times to the extent that, like, there are certain beats that I know, maybe like 25, 30 beats that this lecture has. And if I'll give that talk a hundred times, it'll be 80 or 90% the same content every time. It's that, and yet, it's only 80 or 90% the same every time. There's always a certain spontaneity to it because it has to do with where I'm at in my life, in my spiritual journey. It has to do with where the people in the room are at, you know, how I'm reacting right. to them, how they're reacting to me. So there is a certain um, lack of polish in that sense, like it's always an act of, okay, let's walk in there and see what happens. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a real process every time. And also anytime I speak about something, I'm listening to myself. And, and, and I, I, take, I take it seriously. So when I'm listening to myself, I'm, 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 I'm listening with an ear of like, is this guy authentic? Does he even mean this? And if I, right, you said this in one of our conversations about quoting yourself, you not this exactly in a different way about quoting yourself. Like the last thing you ever want to do is quote yourself. Quoting yourself, right? right exactly. Where you said something really well one time, and you're like, oh, that's a good way of saying that. And right. then just the next time you say it, you fall back on saying it the way, the way that you've you already it. articulated it. That way. But it doesn't feel as true this time. Yeah, because it's, it's not. It's not happening. It's not right. happening in the moment. And sometimes you have to spare eloquence for the sake of authenticity. It's another one of the occupational hazards of putting the spiritual into words, is you can fall in love with the words, with the poetry. Then it becomes performative, which is antithetical to spiritual growth. Everything can become an affectation. something that was an act of spontaneity that becomes ritualized 
almost becomes very antithesis of what it what it's meant to be. Right. It almost feels like this the concept of having spiritual rituals is how good could you get at this? <laughs> that you can bring something um something new into something so old. You know there's a, a saying yeah. Marcel Proust, I think, is and to look at the world with new eyes, right? To encounter to encounter a person or something with new eyes. Remember relationship therapist mentioning that to my wife and I when we went and say, Can you look at this person anew for the first time? Mm. And that is spiritual, right? In the moment, the present moment, this this breath. And the same with a ritual. Can we do Shabbos every single week? Mm-hmm. And can it feel new? Can it feel real? Right. Right. Like you talk to somebody who wasn't Shabbos observant and they are invited for Shabbos. They have their first Shabbos experience. It's like, it's memorable. Shabbos, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, and for the family that invited them, maybe it's a regular Shabbos. They didn't do anything special. Right. <laughs> but for the guy who, it's his first time, the whole thing is, wow, I'll never forget. We've yeah. gone to a bunch of different places in this uh, conversation. Did we, did we say all that needs to be said for this? Like I said, uh, the question is always, is anything we're saying an improvement upon silence? Well, so I'll tell you the coolest thing. Yeah. The coolest thing is how long do we know each other? How many times have we spoken? Uh, a lot of times. A lot of times. But there's things I learned in this conversation because of this format of putting these things in front of us that just right. is cool. It allows for conversations that would not happen in a different way. How many times do you have a conversation with someone where you're certain, you're certain that they will not pick up the phone during the conversation? You call them and you're certain they're not going to answer? No. You're certain that while you're sitting there talking oh, 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 to them, they, they're they not won't going, take another call. They won't take another call. They won't. Oh. How often do we get that experience? Oh. Yeah, because while I'm sitting here, my phone has vibrated hundreds of times, and it was never even a thought to me to take a look at it. But if it wouldn't be for the camera, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but just the fact that I would be in a conversation with you, I don't think it would have kept me from at least looking. Right. I would have looked. Right. I have mine on the table there on Do Not Disturb. It's not often what I do. You know what? This is going to be my new date night. I'm going to come here with my wife. We're going to sit here. We're going to pretend the cameras are on. We're going to have a conversation. And I'll do the same thing I'll do to you. I'll pretend that I had technical issues three or four times in a row. (laughs) Right. And then you'll attempt to see her for the first time. Right. And I'll say, you know what the truth is? This was never about this anyway. I just wanted to talk to you and connect. Thank you. (laughs) And in order to do it, I have to be certain that you're not going to run out on a phone call. So just tying this back in with what I was talking about earlier about the spirituality of human connection. You know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what justifies talking is that somebody listening to this is going to hear it and it's going to validate them or it's going to put something into perspective for them or give them some clarity. And the reality is that perhaps the entire value that justifies me talking so much is just to become closer with Ellie. 
Correct. But I'm very uncomfortable saying that. That makes me very uncomfortable. Well, if we're being honest, at this point in the conversation, even the biggest fans are not listening anymore. This is like a this is way too long. Yeah, way too long. That's this true. is just they all left. They all left. No one's gonna ever hear no this. No one's ever gonna hear this. You can Unless... watch, by the way, in the YouTube analytics where it drops off. There's going to be no one at this point. No one. It yeah. is, unless someone cuts it into a short, no one is ever going to hear this. It's just for me and you. So it's great. It's great getting to know you. <laughs> Thank you, Rav Chase. Okay. Thank you Thank for you. Uh, coming to our home and uh, gracing us with your presence. It's much, it's much more fun in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be um, inauthentic, so I don't want to say it's more fun, but... It's probably more meaningful. Beautiful. It is more meaningful. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you.